begin with this, uh, this, this statement uh, or an, an observation. Um, I, I think an emblematic moment in the run-up to the last election was when the leaders of the three parties stood in front of the camera to berate immigration in front of a receptive and interestingly multi-ethnic audience. Everyone agreed that this, this land had become too crowded, that Britons must be placed before immigrants, um, particularly at the time of crisis, um, and this was not that this was not a matter of racial prioritization, that there were limits to cosmopolitanism, openness, and multiculturalism. And like so many times in the past, in this one moment of xenophobia, and with its easy political use, we saw that aversion, or a politics of aversion, was on the march again. But I thought, interestingly, on that particular day, and all the chatter surrounding the elections, um, this was happening with the consent, to a very large degree, of Britain's settled minorities as well, or at least so it seemed <coughs> on the day, and that this was happening in the name of uh, crisis management and also in the name of defending a way of life. And this odd juxtaposition, in my view, between a certain openness towards a sense of community and a foreclosure <coughs> on those who challenge community, we find also uh, buried deep in periodic reviews by the European Union of social attitudes in different member states. In 1997, which was the declared EU year against racism, those who were surveyed, amongst those who were surveyed, one third of Europeans declared themselves, and these were um, given categories, declared themselves to be quite or very racist. Um, with migrants and immigrants, particularly in the north, northern countries of Europe, um, <coughs> seen as threats to security, national heritage, <coughs> and liberal freedoms. But at that time, 1997, three quarters of the people who were surveyed still declared support for multiculturalism. By 2005, um, a few years on after 9-11, and with progressively deepening um, economic instability, 65% of Europeans were now uh, regretting multiculturalism, again, a stated category. 25% wanted the repatriation of illegal immigrants. And two-thirds of Europeans, now both in the North and the South, saw the migrant stroke immigrant as a threat to the freedoms that they declared in 1997 as quintessentially European. Namely, <coughs> peace, social equality, freedom of expression, tolerance, and openness to others. And again, these are stated survey categories. So it seems to me that in recent years, in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, xenophobia and liberalism seem to be progressing hand in hand, um, allowing politicians, uh, 
politics in general and the media to feel that it's fair game to make game of certain strangers without guilt or any reservation. <coughs> asylum seekers, the Roma, Muslims, poor migrants can now be spoken of as an encumbrance, as out of place, as a threat to historical identity, um, to be kept out or disciplined, interestingly, in the name of liberalism. So what I think we're seeing is a, a politics of intolerance as a necessary defense of particularly cherished freedoms. And it's this play on liberalism, the, the harnessing of intolerance to a specific account of civic freedom and cultural identity that interests me in Land of Strangers. And especially so uh, because of because there's a specific conundrum I think that needs to be answered. How does xenophobia find grip in a space of convivial multiculture and hybridity? Uh, in societies that are visibly and constitutively mixed and plural. So I approach this question in the book in terms of a balance of force between two things. On the one hand, circulations in public culture of incivilities uh, of difference, such as the things that are daily produced by a biopolitical machinery involved in remaking certain people as barbarians, particularly after 9-11. Or, in the same box, um, certain deep-rooted vernaculars of bodily aversion, which I shall come back to in a minute, which constantly return particular incivilities of difference. And on the other hand, um, civil civilities of indifference to difference based on our everyday negotiations of and attachments with spaces, objects, cultural domains, projects and interests shared with others, including those who we choose to label consciously as unwanted strangers. So my argument is that <coughs> the biopolitical today, the technologies of managing what Foucault called the society to be defended, is the pivot of the balance between everyday encounter practiced as a virtue of tolerance and or as a virtue in inverted commas of defense against the anomalous stranger. My claim in the book is that it's, it is the armory of state-sanctioned tools of human selection, human reward, discipline and control uh, that turn, in our case, uh, the liberal compass on living with difference in one direction or the other as a collective resonance. So here I think the best I can achieve is just to provide an illustration based on one of the chapters in the book called The Remainders of Race, uh, before teasing out if there's time, Michael, um, some of the normative implications of, of, my, of my account of, of things contemporary. So, in, the, in this short paper that I've written, this, this next part of the talk, I, I've, let, I've called Mistress of Race. 
the contemporary escalations of race, more exactly, the racial coding of difference um, in Europe, and particularly as an act of explicit aversion, I think can be read in the terms that I set up in the introduction. As the play, essentially, between three uh, sets of encounter with difference. So turning to the first, um, on the ground, daily urban life, and many of us who work on cities can you know, come brimful with evidence to prove this, daily urban life is, in the strongest possible terms, a form of expert negotiation of difference, and usually without uh, rancor. And we see this most clearly in the play of bodies in urban public space from our libraries through to streets and other places and points of gathering um, <coughs> of strangers. Um, where I think what we find, and I argue one of the other chapters in the book, is a normalization of being in the company of strangers through habits of co-dwelling, of co-presence. And I believe these are ha habits of co-dwelling without any form of explicit recognition um, of the other body. So what I argue in the book is that the, on, the, in these forms of expert negotiation of difference in everyday living, um, in these spaces, public spaces, what we find is that co-presence is regulated by a number of, let's call them, harmless uh, disciplining routines such as habits of avoidance, uh, such as the hidden orderings of technology in public space, from traffic signals through to the uh, organization of buildings, through to how the built environment and symbolic environment in public space itself for, acts as a form of uh, disciplining tool, which allows strangers, in a sense, to remain in the company of each other, without recognizing each other, but somehow still um, uh, with the certain degree of civility of indifference towards difference. Here in public space, in the everyday Western city, or cities all over the world for that matter, strangers, I think, just glide past each other, in general loyal to themselves and to other intimate objects that they carry with, around with them or that they are surrounded by, or certainly pushed along um, by a whole series of, of, uh, uh, of norms, materials of, of uh, kind of mapping and flow in public space. And so this, in this daily recursive habit, I think what we find is that people in a sense, become trained in the manners of sharing space. And the result, therefore, is a conviviality born, I argue in the book, less, born less out of civic virtue of any kind, or indeed even out of a pathology of interpersonal engagement or recognition, than quite simply out of the habit of bodily training um, in going inhabited space. So the form of multicultural there, I think that is born out of space itself, 
rather than um, the uh, uh, the cultural in, the, the kind of the amount of things that go into making up um, cultural habits born out of interpersonal recognition. But then moving on to the second set of things that I wanted to look at, we also know quite strongly enough from a body of work on um, what, what's been labeled phenotypical <coughs> racism, that is racial labeling based on surface ocular stimuli, such as pigment, attire, or gaze, that this bodily training in public space is always loaded with affective judgment of, of one sort or another. And here we can think of um, Jason Lim's work on the performances on the dance floor of racial cool and uncool, Arun Saldana's work on the enactments of whiteness and its inferior others on the beaches of Goa, and in fact, the word phenotypical racism I, I borrowed from Arun's book. Um, the geographer Dan Swanton's work, wonderful work on how shiny cars, reverse caps, and rucksacks stand as proxies for identifying subversive or depraved Muslims in Bradford, Keithley, Burnley, the that in, um, experienced um, civic riots <coughs> in, in 2001. So here I think we find a body of work that gestures towards what I would still, what I would call a still poorly understood vernacular of racial labeling with very, very deep roots. <coughs> Where the selection routinely places the same bodies in the same place as inferior, as discrepant, and as somehow threatening. In phenotypical judgment, what we find is a force and a swiftness of response that exceeds the learnt, and it certainly exceeds the contingent too. Um, if the sensory <coughs> stimuli, as if the sensory stimuli triggered um, a, a, an innate human sorting instinct, which is passed on intergenerationally as a kind of racial faculty. The, the, this endurance of race um, as a primary color of coding difference is not genetically scripted. I'm not arguing this in the book, not even remotely so. But what I am trying to argue in the book is phenotypical racism is generationally uh, transmitted through a combination of nurture, institutionalization, and patterns of biological reflex. That together return the same subject as troublesome well before thought. Um, and so my point here is that what happens going on here is that any vicariously gathered clue, a rucksack or a, 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 a cap turned in the opposite way, a hijab, um, a certain sound, could, could be anything, um, suffices to maintain phenotypical racism. So moving on to the third uh, set of uh, orderings, if you like. The book, therefore, argues that the negotiation of everyday multiculture in the workplace, in cities, in intimate publics, there are several 
two or three chapters on Europe as an intimate public, for example. Um, but this negotiation of everyday multiculture hovers around these two first two reflexes. The conviviality of the inhabiting shared space and negotiating plural affiliations, as it were, without rancor. And on the other hand, the forcings of phenotypical sorting, um, which we have still yet to understand properly, I think. The former at ease, generally, with difference, and the latter an enduring selection mechanism, kind of fretting about the stranger, but fretting about the stranger generally in the background, but always there, ready to pounce when given public legitimacy. So this brings me to the third, and I think the most powerful, regulator of what we can now call public feelings, um, which I tackle in the book. Namely, the, biopoli the, the biopolitical machinery of societal <coughs> framing and societal defense. This is where I think the power of <coughs> behind the casualization of xenophobia um, from the three-party leaders steps in, I think, with cruel uh, efficacy. And countless, countless examples today of the same sort of uh, public gesturing. How the biopolitical machinery names community and prepares for its defense, in my view, tips the balance between liberal tolerance and liberal intolerance. Now, in, in, in much the same way as we saw in the EU survey results that I cited at the start. And in the process, legitimating phenotypical racism, provincializing everyday multiculture, in other words, locations in only particular spaces, and then and justifying war on the stranger as a necessity. So here, I would argue that today in Europe, it's not just the economic circumstances and public anxieties about an uncertain future that explain the xenophobic term. It, it is, above all, the characterization of future well-being by leaders, opinion makers, and the chattering classes in general, backed by an armory of materials that, that make up a security culture, um, which explain what we see, which I think has tipped the balance between the culture of everyday, of everyday multiculture treated as, at best, tolerance and everyday multiculture that becomes much more vile and much more selective in its orderings. So, following the, the work of a, how to describe him, of a political philosopher, Ali Ophir, uh, an Israeli political philosopher, um, the book argues that what Europe is witnessing at the moment is a, is a slow transition from what Ophir calls a providentialist uh, security culture. And by this he means, he doesn't mean providing, um, sorry, he means providing as a welfare state type of providentialism rather than godly um, in any shape or form. A slow transition from a providentialist <coughs> biopolitics 
to what he calls the catastrophes biopolitics. And I just want to spend a few minutes um, explaining this transition. So providentialism in post-war Europe, um, <coughs> symbolized by the social state, presented in general terms the uncertain future as both knowable and manageable through universal protections. And it worked through a combination of a number of different things. A combination um, of both diplomacy and attack. It, of course it worked through attack too, particularly the, in pointing the guns towards communism and the post-colonies in the post-war period. But it also worked through the institutions of social democracy and, and indeed the active management of collective well-being. And in the providential, providentialist optic, what, what I think we saw was a folding of the stranger into such a calculus of future community. In its worst moments, it was racially selective or simulationist, as a number of people, including some in this room, have written. And at its best moments, um, it, it was egalitarian, redistributive, and to a degree multicultural in its figuring and refiguring of the, of the figure of the stranger. Catastrophism, in contrast, I think projects the future as, as perilous, as uncertain, and only partially knowable ever. And therefore, defiant of, an, of the all protections of culture of risk mitigation, that providentialism at least pretended that it could um, roll out. Catastrophism accepts the future as unavoidably disruptive and unavoidably damaging. And it considers the social state, either on pragmatic or ideological grounds, and indeed also social democracy, to be largely ineffective. And its watchword is, and some of you who work on issues of risk will know this, its two key watchwords are preparedness and resilience. The one all about getting ready for the worst possible event, and the other building the capacity to address the worst possible event. And now no longer through just state uh, protections, but primarily through a community redefined. So the calculus of order today, under a, a catastrophist umbrella, <coughs> um, gathering around catastrophism, includes a number of things. It includes effort in the public sphere to absolutely name and nail the enemy, to closely track potentially dangerous subjects, to close down on the open society, to suspend democracy as and when required in the name of security, to engineer, uh, as a number of uh, writers have observed recently, to engineer <coughs> the, the excitable, entrepreneurial, um, vigilant subject um, as a figure of future resilience, but also a figure who can 
found themselves deep into the ontology of things in order to anticipate attack and crisis before it uh, becomes even a possibility. In other words, round up the stranger before the stranger becomes even remotely dangerous. So here, I think the stranger begins to return as only an encumbrance, as only uh, future threat, as quite literally the focal point of future community survival and future community cohesion. Nothing else matters more than dealing with the stranger in order to safeguard our future. And this, I think, was exactly what was going on um, when the three-party leaders addressed a, an anxious uh, population, shall we say. So, without dismantling the the armature, the, the language of catastrophism, I think the Mark Stranger will stand very little chance in uh, appearing as a as a figure of well, as a figure who's just simply there, as 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 as, as uh, part and parcel of what being part and parcel of what multiculture is all about. So, just a couple of minutes then to conclude, Michael. Um, so, so this, in, in, in a nutshell, is the argument of the book, and I, and I kind of track the argument in different sites of uh, being together, urban public space, the workplace, uh, imagined community, and, and more. The book also traces the outline of a counter, struggles to trace the outline of a counter-narrative of belonging. And let me just say three things here by way of conclusion. One constant refrain in the book is, is my discomfort with the notion that a notion peddled primarily by progressives that the disciplinary society needs to be disarmed by a normativity of cooperation and contact between strangers. Though I'm not in the book intrinsically averse <coughs> to prosaic experiments of interculture, such as, uh, and so many of these we talked about in recent years, such as mixed housing, community gardens, um, twin schools, collaborative working, and other examples in which um, people from different backgrounds are brought together, the book judges society and space in the West to be far too hybrid, far too impersonal, and far too multipolar to be harnessed by any public desire uh, for the social viewed as purely the interpersonal. <coughs> Though this is not to deny in the way that Richard Sennett shows quite brilliantly in his new book Together, that out of the arts of living with difference, um, through studied forms of collaboration as a form of studied trust uh, are born quite enduring um, means <coughs> of tackling uh, or living within difference in the most positive way. But my, my argument in the book is that um, this is wishful thinking. You could expect uh, publics which are so hybrid as they, they have become today. And in a sense, so object-mediated is uh, kind of asking for uh, Impossible. The book also notes a disturbing imbalance in the politics of interculture 
intending to ask usually the subaltern to play at reconciliation, while the mainstream is allowed usually to hide behind the veneer of a bestowed liberal subjectivity. We, the majorities, don't need to change. You, the minorities, really need to cooperate, really need to collaborate, really need to uh, learn to live with others by bringing yourself into the center. But the center doesn't actually move. And so that's another kind of misgiving of mine in the book about the politics of interculture. Instead of a politics of human recognition and reconciliation, the book opts for a different kind of politics, which is also full of its own contradictions, but let me just name it. It, it opts for a politics of, of trying to thicken public identification with the commons as a, as a plural and shared entity, um, as actually a necessary entity. And in part, I see this in the book um, as, in, as, involve, sorry, as involving the recovery of some of the principles of the social state, which have been buried by the naturalization of neoliberal values, through such things as a politics of stricter market regulation, uh, a politics were it possible, or were it possible, of a return to ideas of universal welfare, of comprehensive insurance that went with the providentialist calculus and just jettisoned by the catastrophist calculus. Um, of ironically being proud of social democracy and indeed also of collective organization. Without these provisions by way of shorthand of social democracy, I can't actually see how uh, everyday multiculturalism can be prevented from tipping into uh, phenotypical racism into a politics of real envy and aversion. But we also know from the history of the social state that the commons upheld in this sense as a collective unconscious working behind our backs through the provisions of the state, for, for example, does not in and of itself guarantee uh, a cosmopolitan public culture. So a key contemporary challenge then I, I, I suggest in the book is to progressively make public everyday multiculture. It's tacit pluralism, it's practice and deliberative nature, it's daily compromises, it's pragmatic negotiation of uncertainty and indeed also of risk. Um, and I think such making public in broadly editorial terms I think requires a resolute and sustained push by social movements, by progressive forces, and social democratic institutions. Above all, above all, in the media and in public culture in general, and I think we can come back to this in the discussion as to how, how far uh, officially sanctioned public culture uh, doesn't allow a move of this sort to, to occur. Uh, sustained push by these bodies that I've mentioned, to present the plural communal as both necessary and worthwhile. Um, admittedly, its, its ground is the very long haul <coughs> that involves disenchanting neoliberalism, ridiculing, and I mean that, ridiculing the cultural catastrophism, um, defending collectivism, openness and solidarity, 
um, shaming discrimination and easy labeling, and facilitating uh, the construction of a truly agonistic public sphere. But also working on, and again, how we do this is not self-evident, on aspects of empathy, curiosity, and multiplicity. Reinventing, in some, the language of belonging in a multicultural society, where belonging is multicultural and nothing other than that. So much of this <coughs> making public is about making explicit our civilities of everyday multicultural and perhaps also of collaboration where it occurs, not invention from above. But it is also crucially about publicizing exactly from above a new narrative of community, a new narrative of being together that begins to take the stranger as given. And so, to conclude, what I say in the book is that once this kind of effort is, is, is carefully marshaled and somehow sustained through new forms of ethical and affective reach, and of course, even material necessary to stop discrimination and kind of easy violence of the figure of the stranger, then I think the politics of the social as a craft of collaboration uh, among strangers in the way that some people might want could be generalized, perhaps even rendered unnecessary for living with difference. So my kind of final word on this book is that um, the, the best way forward for living with difference is to become indifferent to difference. Yeah, so. Thank you.